You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, August 26, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's stories, Nick Correa. Thanks, Ash. Back in March, the Fed released a memo laying out how they would be supporting the flow of credit to households and businesses. As part of their efforts to achieve that, they announced that they would be reducing reserve requirements to zero for the time being. Between unprecedented levels of quantitative easing and a reserve requirement of zero, banks' excess reserves have grown rapidly. Of course, to encourage the flow of liquidity, rates have been cut close to zero, as have the interest rates paid to banks on excess reserves. As a result, there was a major credit glut, especially in the beginning, with large corporations and businesses clamoring to secure debt to finance their operations as they faced extreme slumped demand. The Fed's liquidity injections that began in March helped assuage investors and officials' fears of a tightened credit market. But are credit markets tightening? There's some data that indicates that they are. The July 2020 Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey on Bank Lending Practices covers the terms and demand for bank loans to businesses and households for the past three months, corresponding approximately to Q2 2020. Banks reported that they had tightened their standards for commercial and industrial loans, and also reported weaker demand for CNI loans overall. Banks have also said that there was tightening across all three major categories of commercial real estate loans, construction and land development, non-farm, non-residential, and multifamily. Same thing here with demand on commercial real estate loans, weaker overall. For households, banks tightened on all categories of residential real estate loans, while demand especially for GSE-eligible mortgages, is picking up. Banks are also tightening on auto loans, credit cards, and other forms of consumer loans. As demand for these forms of debt are plummeting. This is where the rubber hits the road. Will all of this excess liquidity from the Fed find its way into the economy? Or will credit markets continue to tighten and potentially stifle economic growth in the long run? And with that, I'll send it back over to Ash and Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Nick. Welcome back, Ed. Yeah, well, it's good to be back. And uh, I have a few things for you. As always, I have to talk to you about. Uh, Football, aka soccer. You heard about Leo Messi wanting to leave Barcelona. I'm sure you know about that. I know nothing about that. <laughs> and you know the reason I always do this is because we've got to we've got to get you up to speed. The the new season is coming. He's the um, one of the most prolific players. He and uh, Cristiano Ronaldo in the, in uh, in football today. So you, you've got you've got to follow that, Ash. When does the season start? You know, I'm not sure because of COVID, but uh, it usually starts actually right now. Usually the beginning of the season is now, but they're they're delaying it because they just ended the Champions League. So they just ended last season. 
And that's actually the reason that Messi is looking to leave Barcelona because the Champions League ended. His contract says that at the end of the season, he can leave. So he's trying to leave now. It's a, it's a whole, we could go on. Like if you were a real uh, soccer fan, we could talk about this for the full 30 minutes. I'm working on it. <laughs> and talking about things that I do follow, what are you looking at today in markets? Yeah, so you know, I'm uh, backing into what Nick was talking about. I wanted to speak about where we are transition-wise uh, because that bank lending standards tightening is very interesting with regard to my thesis that September and October are the timeframes that we really want to look at. I just got off the phone earlier today with uh, Shri Kumar, who I'm going to talk to tomorrow about uh, his thesis with regard to long-duration bonds. And I think that he also is looking at this whole nexus of what's happening in the real economy versus what's happening in the financial economy. I think that the real economy is definitely showing some signs of rolling over. And the real question is, is it going to continue and what sort of impact is it going to have on asset markets, particularly on bond prices and on equity prices? So, and we talked a little bit about, you know, you and I both have worked in uh, in fixed income before. For people who aren't familiar with the duration on bonds, what does that term of art mean? Yeah, so basically duration is the average uh, maturity, the average length of time that you get uh, your money back. Uh, so, for instance, if you have a bond and it pays a coupon that's a, a interest rate of, say, 3%, you get 3% payments every uh, 1.5% payments every half year uh, out until say 10 years and then you get a balloon payment of the full $100 uh, per 100%. Uh, somewhere in that range is going to be the the median maturity of the payments that you're getting and the longer it is before you get your balloon payment the longer the duration of the asset is. So if the asset is a 30-year bond, then the duration is longer. And actually, the lower the interest rate, the longer the duration as well. Yeah, so it's basically the time that it takes to pay off the price of the bond from the internal cash flows. And uh, in terms of the the interest rate, it's actually it's the coupon rate that's determining because it, it matters what the cash flow on the bond is relative to the point where you bought it at. Uh, and I know that there's a lot I've forgotten here, like the difference, for example, between Macaulay duration and simple duration, totally lost to memory. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the simple thing is, is, is that the lower the interest rate, uh, the longer the duration. So that's why you're getting even longer duration now that interest rates are down. And also the longer the maturity, the longer the duration. And longer duration assets are more volatile uh, relative to changes in interest rates. So uh, if you're really bullish, you know, someone like Gary Schilling will tell you, you, you want to go into zero coupon strips, uh, which are longer duration assets, the longest of the long duration, because those are going to give you the most upside. But there's a double-edged sword with that. Yeah, the duration on a zero coupon is coterminous with the maturity because it's not paying off any uh, interest payments over the course of the of the uh, of the life of the bond. You pick it up all at the end. But you hit on really what the key point is, which is that the lower the coupon payment is, uh, the uh, the longer it takes to get paid back the principal uh, of the bond that you invested or the purchase price, I should say. 
Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the way I was looking at, you know, I had this whole thing about uh, risk assets being a play on duration, that the momentum trade was really a duration play. The lower that we've been going, the 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 longer the duration of assets were and therefore people were moving out the risk curve in equities as well. But the reality is, is, is that uh, how low can you go? Uh, you can go to zero. But can you go into negative rates in the United States? I'm not sure. So at some point, a lot of people are thinking we're going to back up. The rates will back up. And given the fact that rates are already so low, if and when they do back up, it's going to have a very negative impact, not just on equities, but potentially also or not just on uh, bonds, but also potentially in equities because uh, equities are basically a play on duration. And for people who don't follow the cross-asset correlations as closely as you do, explain a little bit about how that expresses itself, the correlation between the duration trade in bonds and U.S. equity prices. Yeah, so there are two ways that I'm thinking of it. The, the first way that most people are thinking of it in, is in terms of the discounted cash flows of uh, equity, uh, the, the cash flows that uh, a company spends off. So that a bond, when the bond yields are lower, the discount rate of those cash flows is lower and that means that the flows that are further out in maturity are actually worth more because they're discounted back at a lower amount because the discount rate is lower. I'm also thinking of it in terms of the Peter Atwater K-shaped recovery type of thing. That is, is, is that there are certain assets which are uh, really bid up and then there are assets that are not bid up. I believe that the assets that are being bid up are being bid up as a proxy for what I would call secular stagnation. That is, is, is that people want to get into these assets because interest rates are low, because we're in a secular stagnation world. But obviously, if that's not the case, if for whatever reason we get into a stagflationary world or somehow we get a vaccine and things turn around and then suddenly we have growth, then the bid for those assets is not going to be as strong as it otherwise would be. You know, it's amazing we are not hearing more about secular stagnation because this is, it seems as though it could be one of the theories that could describe very well the simple, the absence of growth that we've had in the economy uh, and some of the challenges that we're having uh, with things like income distribution and income inequality. Yeah, d without a doubt. And, you know, uh, I think that we'll see whether or not secular stagnation comes into the fore because of this uh, tightening of, of uh, business uh, lending standards that we were talking about uh, earlier with Nick, I, uh, you know, just because he was mentioning this, I was looking at some other information. I saw on Reuters, actually, there was an article from August the 3rd that was talking about bank, uh, the banks tightening their lending standards in, in Q2, that loan demand dropped in Q2. The article yeah. is basically saying that demand for nearly all types of loans also fell. That is consumer loans, business loans, real estate loans in Q2. So the question then becomes in a world of secular stagnation where you also are going over the fiscal cliff, which is where we potentially are uh, in the September to October timeframe, what does that mean in terms of the real economy? And then what is the knock on effect into asset prices in this, this K, this bifurcated K type of, uh, of uh, situation? Yeah, I look forward to hearing more about CNI lending, commercial and industrial lending, and CRE lending, commercial real estate uh, lending, in the in the uh, in the months to come as a metric of what's happening in the real economy.
Let me tell. Let me uh, let, let's see if we can pull up a a, um, a chart here just to give you a sense of how gangbusters this whole thing is right now. Because when you mentioned that, uh, I think it's interesting. If you look at the GDP now numbers, which is what the Atlanta Fed releases every uh, few days, they update this. It's a now cast, which means that they do this statistical correlation to say if things were to uh, pan out the way they are up to, to this point, our, our numbers spit out this number for GDP growth for this particular year or for this particular quarter. And so the number that they've spit out is actually 25.6% for uh, Q3. That's th for the data that go up through uh, August the 18th. The interesting bit, however, is, is, is that the now cast of the third quarter, real residential investment growth decreased from a ridiculously high 60.7% to 39% in their last update. So these are numbers that are rolling over at a ridiculously uh, high rate to the degree that we continue to see this, um, what I would call a fiscal cliff, that is the, the lack of, uh, of fiscal impulse into the economy, a, a complete shutdown of fiscal spending uh, to deal with the pandemic, those numbers are going to roll over in a big way. So 25.6% is going to go down to 15%, 10%. And I think even for Q4, you could see a negative number in a worst case scenario. Yeah, another negative number, right? It's coming off about a 33% contraction. And by the way, we should probably add all of these numbers that we're talking about here are being expressed SAAR. So that's a seasonally adjusted annualized rate. So basically what they're doing is they're adjusting the quarter uh, to coincide with what it would happen if it were a full year at that rate. Right. And, and, you know, so uh, the, the conversation that people are basically having now uh, in terms of the dichotomy between the real economy and the financial economy, a lot of it has to do with money growth. So if you look at, say, M2 money growth over time, uh, what you'll see is, is, is that money growth is in the, you know, it's 10 percent or less. It's been much less. It's been less than 5 percent uh, right before we had this crisis. And it just shot through the roof up to 25 percent uh, wow. during this particular time as the Fed went bananas and just was injecting money like crazy. And so. But, but Ed, what's the punchline? The punchline is, is, is that, you know, not everywhere is it a monetary phenomenon. Right. Uh, M Milton Friedman said inflation is any and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in terms of the impulse to the economy. I'm thinking in terms of not necessarily real GDP, but nominal GDP and inflation. We're not getting inflation. We're not getting a huge spike in nominal GDP per se. Why? Because money velocity is just plummeting. And this goes back to the secular stagnation play. If you look at the velocity of M2 money stock, what you see is, you know, through the last two cycles, it's been going down. It went down in the cycle after the internet bubble burst. It went down again after we had the great financial crisis and it's plummeted over uh, this particular pandemic. And that what that's telling you is that you're pushing on a string. It's telling you that on a, a broader scale, uh, this whole thing about bank tightening, lending standards, and the fall off in the fiscal cliff 
is really going to have a pernicious effect on the economy unless we deal with it very soon. Yeah, that's extremely well said. And that really is the key point there. I knew if I teed that ball up, you'd absolutely hammer it. And uh, it's spot on, right? That is the, the notion that uh, with collapse of uh, the velocity of the M2 money stock, uh, the, the inflation, uh, the inflation bears who, who see, uh, who see, you know, skyrocketing Weimar Germany style inflation around every corner uh, have been wrong time and time again. And because of that phenomenon, exactly as you describe it. Yeah. And, you know, even the Fed, I mean, we, we think the Fed's pouring it on, right, because we see those numbers uh, for uh, M2 uh, money stock growth. But the reality is, is actually the Fed, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, it really topped out uh, in June and it rolled over through July. It's come back to a certain degree, but the Fed's balance sheet is lower now than it was uh, at the beginning of June. So I think that, uh, you know, we are in a period now where the Fed is not going turbo. Uh, we have uh, the fiscal cliff rolling over and then we have stocks hitting new highs on the Nasdaq and the S&P on a regular basis. And individual stocks like Tesla, which have you know gone up four times in this particular year. When I was talking to Sri Kumar, who I'm going to speak to tomorrow on uh, live on uh, RV uh, Pro or RV Plus, he was telling me, look, you know, if you have this dichotomy between the real economy and the financial economy, when do you decide, okay, now's the time to reverse course? Is it 17 times forward earnings in the S&P? Or is it at where we are now, 25 to 26 times forward earnings on the S&P? So that's what we're, we're trying to figure out. What's the impulse that tells you I, I've been saying pretty consistently that I think September and October, the fiscal cliff is going to be a huge impulse if it's not fixed. So this is a good time for us to think uh, there's going to be a, a transition. It's either A, a transition from the K-shaped economy. That is, is, is that you have a reweighting of assets within your portfolio, or B, it's just going to be a wholesale uh, a sell-off in risk assets as people flee to treasuries. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. Tesla right now trading at 1100 times trailing 12 month earnings. I mean, so, you know, it's it is there's aspects of this uh, of this particular market that seem just completely delusional and out of touch with reality. Also higher uh, as of yesterday, at least I haven't checked today, higher, uh, higher total enterprise value, higher market cap than Walmart. Yeah, uh, that that's pretty crazy. Then Walmart, in fact. And Walmart. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I should, I should yeah. add, by the way, that the chart that you were referring to uh, is the total assets uh, of, of the Fed balance sheet. And you can see it, what you were, the, the movement you're talking about was rolling up from about $4 trillion in 2020 uh, to, uh, to about uh, $7.1 or so trillion as a high. And, you know, it's interesting, even that chart, which is striking when you look at it, because it goes totally, it goes totally parabolic in, in, uh, in uh, Q3 20. But even that chart, when you look at it from 2004, 
from, from 2004, we were at $800 billion in total assets on the Fed balance sheet. And then we jumped up pretty dramatically. Well, we thought it was dramatically, at least at the time, from about 800, uh, about 800 billion to around 4 trillion. And now up, 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 nearly doubling again. Yeah, and a lot of people are there, you know, when we talk about the K-shaped recovery, they're trying to put their heads around from a macro perspective. What's this saying? Not only uh, uh, what's this saying, but what's the what's the uh, macro paradigm that I could use? And therefore, from a timing perspective, how can I understand when there are shifts in that macro paradigm? One of the macro paradigms that I think works for most people when they're thinking about it is the dichotomy between fiscal and monetary policy. I, I'm definitely going to talk to Sri about this, you know, the so-called monetary offset, because really uh, what it boils down to is that the Fed's going to pour it on when the fiscal authorities aren't pouring it on. So the the, the thinking is, is, is that the Fed has a mandate to go for inflation, an inflation target, and they also have a full employment mandate. This is something that they've been told by law they have to, to meet, so they're gonna go after it. So to the degree that inflation's below target, to the degree that unemployment is higher than target, they're gonna pour it on. That means they're gonna do whatever it takes in terms of lowering interest rates, uh, buying up assets, et cetera, to try to meet those targets. If the fiscal authorities are not pouring it on at the same time enough to get you there, the Fed is going to offset that uh, that pattern, and so they're going to pour it on even more. So the reason we went from eight million, eight hundred thousand to four, uh, eight hundred billion. Sorry, these numbers are getting. It's so hard large. to say. I mean, right. it's just insane. It, yeah, so from eight hundred billion to four trillion is because the uh, the fiscal authorities uh, needed to be offset. They weren't pouring it on enough. If you could believe that, even today, it's the exact same sort of thing. Is is that the Fed really is is monetary offset going to happen? It has happened, and what happens when monetary offset happens? Asset prices go up. Uh, there's displacement out of certain asset classes into other asset classes. We have the whole thing I was telling you about you know duration proxies, uh, d uh, flattening of the yield curve and the duration. Of going up and therefore assets, uh, asset prices going up, but the real economy stagnates because the mix between fiscal and monetary policy is is not as good. So that's where we are right now. In my view, we're at the mix where fiscal policy is is down, monetary policy is up, and potentially could go up more. You, the question then still remains. Is that bullish for risk assets, or is it a point where you, uh, what's happening in the real economy is so dire that even risk assets have to roll over? Yeah, and it also seems exactly to your point, Ed, it seems like more to come, right? The speculation today, the scuttlebutt, is that tomorrow, uh, sort of virtual Jackson Hole, uh, that Jay Powell will talk about uh, about average inflation targeting. You know, for those who aren't down with the with the Fed speak, it basically means that the Fed can let the economy run hotter. It's it's framed in a way that sounds kind of neutral. That you know, well, we're going to target an average rate of inflation. But really, what they're saying uh, is that when inflation rates and they use PCE as generally their benchmark, when inflation rates sink below their two percent target, they're going to allow the economy to run hot 
uh, in order to compensate for it and to create an average inflation rate uh, of 2%. Now, look, my feeling on this is this is only about pushing things to the upside. Uh, clearly, when uh, the we get negative prints on PCE or CPI, the Fed is going to act. Right. And, you know, we all know because over the last uh, 11 years, 12 years, they've missed their inflation target over and over again that the Fed really doesn't have a handle on inflation. When they have an inflation target, you do have to wonder to yourself, A, can they hit the target? And B, do they have the tools to hit the target? Or is it just that, you know, this is a proxy for them to be able to increase uh, asset prices, increase employment as a result of that, uh, increase output as a result of that, et cetera. Uh, yeah. that, that's what I'm thinking. And so, you know, going back to the original question from there is, what does it take in the real economy? How bad does the real economy have to get before what the Fed's doing by trying to push up asset prices uh, just rolls over? I saw a chart that you sent, actually, of the potential storm surge flooding uh, yeah. of this of this. So, you know, that's yet another what I would call um, black swan. How are you thinking about that? I mean, it's just a flock of black swans. It's 2020. I mean, I, the black swans have become the white swans. I expect, you know, these things to happen at this point. It's been it's been a very difficult year in many ways, and there's a tremendous human toll. Look, I went up to the National Hurricane Center uh, website at uh, at NOAA, and I and I read through just some of the summaries there. And the, and here are some of the the phrases that they're using to talk about it. Quote: Unsurvivable storm surge, destructive waves, catastrophic damage. Uh, obviously, tremendous human cost to people who are in the region. You're talking about uh, not just lives lost, but massive property damage, massively disrupting uh, to people's lives. But in addition to that, we all know that that region, a great deal of refining and transportation capacity uh, for US uh, oil and gas production. You know, you immediately think of, uh, of oil prices, WTI up fractionally, Brent down fractionally on the day, doesn't seem to be priced in. But yet again, another potential impact to the U.S. economy, precisely to your point. And let me just add one other thing, and something that came from you earlier this morning, uh, which was the uh, the piece that Janet Yellen uh, wrote, I think it was in the New York Times, uh, with uh, Jared Bernstein, who is a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And here's the quote. Basically, what the piece is about is Janet Yellen saying, that fiscal policy needs to do more, that we really need more accommodative support from the fiscal side to go along with what the Fed is doing. And here's the quote. We weren't in the room, so we don't know exactly why congressional negotiations broke down or what it will take for them to restart. But we could not be more confident that our economic prescription is the right one. The Fed stepped up. Once again, it's Congress's turn. So it's interesting to hear Chair Yellen making reference to the Fed stepping up and her high degree of confidence that their policy is the right one. The idea being that, look, there's a lot of skepticism now, uh, more broadly. Uh, you and I have talked about it, and there's certainly people uh, who are thinking about this, many uh, from the libertarian perspective, center-right perspective, uh, and, and others, frankly, who are questioning how long we can have interest rates at zero uh, or near zero without creating massive macroeconomic distortions. It seems to me, and obviously, you know, Chair Yellen has spent her life studying this, and uh, and when we second guess it, it's just looking at it from multiple perspectives and trying to understand what's happening. But she's basically saying, all in. Yeah, definitely. Uh, she's uh, To me, she's saying, we're already all in, and we're prepared to go more. But at the end of the day, the, the 
uh, the skew is going to be so large, it could only continue to uh, to create what we've already seen thus far. And by the way, let me just say that uh, I saw an article about New Orleans uh, and Louisiana evictions. Uh, actually, the moratorium on evictions is going to lapse at the end of this month. So not only are you looking at uh, this uh, massive storm that's coming to them, but also, you know, they would already be evicted anyway, many people. So, you know, without the, 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 the fiscal authorities there, that whole sector, that whole sector of the, the country is going to be crushed. My thinking yeah. is about COVID in particular. You know, if you have people who are harboring not in place, but in uh, massive gymnasiums or wherever they're going to go, that right. can't be good for a region that's already, you know, seeing a massive spike up in terms of uh, of their COVID sickness. Uh, just yeah. as you you were saying, it's black swan after black swan. I just I really do believe still that we are going to see, um, you know, September and October be the the uh, the reckoning. Uh, yeah. In terms of reckoning, let me just also say about the U.S. dollar and the reserve currency. So when Janet Yellen says we're going to pour it on. The truth of the matter is, is that the United States, uh, the Fed did not really pour it on relative to other uh, central banks. If you think about where the U.S. was in terms of the yield curve, uh, the steepness of the yield curve and, and why it was there up until uh, the pandemic, it was because Jay Powell, uh, he was raising rates. No one else was raising rates. The United States was raising rates. And in fact, Jay Powell in 2018 raised rates four times when at the beginning of the year he was signaling that he was going to raise it three times. The market thought he was going to raise it two. So the market moved to three, which is where the Fed said they were going to be. And then he raised it one more. That's when we had the accident at the end. And the, and then since then, we've had the reversal of, of Fed policy. But that's only dollar bullish in, in general. Uh, so to the degree that we're moving back to that norm, uh, where you're not getting a, a lot of impulse um, relative to other countries, I'm not really that negative on the dollar here, as a lot of people are. I think that we're at the end, the, the bottom of a trading range uh, for the dollar, especially against the euro, and that the impulse for the dollar is higher from this point. Yeah, and as we've said so many times before, DXY is basically a proxy against the euro uh, to ninety two point nine today. You know, and so, so many important points there, and uh, it, it really does start to feel now as as we head into, frankly, the time frame that you've been expressing from the very beginning of this here at the end of August. It really does feel like an inflection point, a very difficult time uh, for the people who are in the Gulf right now. Uh, and uh, you know, there was an article I was reading, I think it was yesterday, about how. A single super spreader event in the Boston area may have been the trigger for a substantial proportion of the U.S. spread of COVID in the first place. And when you think back uh, to those terrible images that we saw coming out of Katrina, people huddled in high school gymnasiums and uh, and that sort of thing, it's really difficult under such difficult and and frankly painful circumstances to even think about maintaining the kind of social distancing that we've used to flatten the curve and get things under control. An uncertain time, a difficult time. Uh, and a lot of uh, uncertainty quavering on the horizon. Yeah, and uh, you know, at the risk of being very U.S. centric in this particular uh, video that we're doing, uh, I think that's where the action is right now. Uh, the action is 
is in terms of you know what's happening in the in the U.S. relative to what's happening elsewhere. Because uh, even though you have uh, coronavirus cases increasing in Europe, uh, you know you have the fiscal stimulus still flowing in most of those countries. Germany just released more fiscal stimulus. It's pretty much par for the course. You know, steady as she goes there relative to what's happening in the U.S. I think the U.S. is where the rubber hits the road in terms of volatility in asset markets in September and October. And the reason is, is, is that, you know, the preconditions both politically and economically are there for you to have a black swan, you know, give you some adverse downside risk. Yeah. And also at risk of sounding a little bit U.S. centric for our uh, for our friends and sub uh, subscribers who are out in the Gulf, uh, please take care of yourselves. Well said. And as always, a pleasure to have this conversation with you. I wish we had better news and better tidings and better news on the horizon. Yeah, uh, myself as well. And uh, I, I just have to echo what you said. Uh, you know, all I, I hope all is well with our friends in the Gulf. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.